Well, praise the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 9 today. Nehemiah chapter 9. I'll give you a minute to get there. Now, every now and then you'll be reading your Bible and going through some place that you've gone, you know, read many, many a time. And I was reading through Nehemiah a few days ago, and it just struck me that even though we have a completed Word of God, here in 2023, we've got the completed Word of God, okay? And, and that's a blessing. And so it's a little different than what was going on in Nehemiah and Ezra's day. But as a little introduction into our passage, in Nehemiah 8, verse 14, it says, They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seventh month. So they've, they've, they are reading the Bible. They're restoring the scriptures to them. And Israel had been in decay. Jerusalem had been in decay. Nehemiah got burdened when he found out about it. He got permission and actually help from the king whom he was serving in captivity. And he comes back and, and between Ezra, the scribe and priest role, and Nehemiah, the builder, leader, pastor, shepherd role, they begin to restore things and they begin to uh, revive things, we might say. And there's times that even though you may have read your Bible many, many times, many, I mean, 10, 20, 30, 40, some of us, it's, it's over 100 now, but it ought to be as many years as we've been saved, okay? Uh, when you get there and you're reading, sometimes you'll, you, you know, we today, though we've read and reread it, sometimes we find practices that the Holy Spirit will apply to us or a truth. So you're not finding some new thing, okay? Here in their passage, they're talking about in verse 17, they made booths and sat under them. But what they did in verse 16, everyone upon the roof of his house is like what we call a canopy today. Or you set up a canopy at a fair, a show, a display, and it's called a what? A booth. Okay, we've done evangelism that way and all kind of stuff we still do. So they were restoring this and... As I was reading that, it just struck me that sometimes God will deal with you about the reviving of practices. That is not an actual anything to do with the direct context of our message. So as I read on the other day, something hit me that I want to read and speak about and fill you in. Now, if you are not familiar with the book of Nehemiah and the books of Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, then try to make yourself familiar with it. Read them. It only takes a little while, a few minutes really, to read them. And familiarize with the context of this, that they are restoring the walls of Jerusalem. It's a, obviously a corporate, as in a group effort, okay? And they're going to restore them, and they're, they gathered the people after they had the basic walls built and were protecting the city. And then they started giving them the word of God. And it says they stood upon a pulpit of wood. A pulpit basically is not just like a podium. It is both. It is both the platform and something you might use to lay a book on 
or some notes on. You know, it's so easy to understand your Bible if you want to. Your English Bible, it's so easy. Your King James Bible, it's easy. In fact, the more you study, you know, to get our degrees, we all had to take three years of Greek and a year of Hebrew. And some of us, you know, tutored it, taught it, you know, through the years. Here's what I found after having read Dean Bergen's books and collated it. You have a treasure, a treasure in our English Bible, in our King James Bible. And if you will take and put as much emphasis on words in English as everyone's trying to do in the, you know, so-called originals, it will amaze you what the English language holds. You can do it, you got it, you know, electronically nowadays, the Webster's 1828 equivalent. And there are some amazing words in your English Bible. One word might have, I looked up word today, it had 12 definitions. And, a, and they made a wide variety. And that kind of thing is something that every single English-speaking, English-reading person can do. So there's no favoritism in it. But the blessing is, the blessing is, you see the continuity of the Bible. Now, I said that to say that when you come to your Bible and you're reading about them doing that and they're restoring the scriptures, they're restoring the worship, as they're preaching and as they're reading, in verse 4, then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua, and Bani, and Cadmiel, and Shebaniah, and Bani, and Sherebiah, Bani, uh, Chenani, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, and Cadmiel, and Bani, and Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hadijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so now they began to exhort the people. And in the middle of all this, verse 16, watch. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments. And refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks. Now, stop a second. I don't know if you know much about livestock, okay? The term stiff-necked is not talking about when you wake up and you didn't have the right pillow or you slept on the wrong side or whatever. The term stiff-necked is about the will. And if you know anything about, or if you learn something about livestock, you take a horse, you take a mule, you take a bullock, a cattle, an oxen, you steer them by their neck. Now you put a bit, for example, in the horse's mouth, and that's supposed to help you to have enough leverage that when you pull on their jaw, they will turn. But what you're really trying to get them to do is turn their neck. Because where their neck goes, the rest of their body follows. When you're do, working with horses, as I have through all the years, decades and decades, one of the things that you really want to do, if you want to stay safe, no matter how much you know your horse, is do a few minutes groundwork before you get on his back or hers back. And the groundwork is you take that horse's head and you bend it towards you while you're on the ground. And a lot of times what you'll do, if you watch, you'll have the reins in one hand or the lead rope and you'll pull, pull their head towards you and you'll push their rear end away from you because 
When their head goes towards you, the rear end's got to move and straighten them out so they can turn. You know, you've seen all the cowboys and the clinking of the spurs. A spur isn't to make them run faster. In fact, if you touch a horse on their side, they'll move away from you, okay? Unless they're in a rebellious mood, and that lets you know when you're doing groundwork that you better do a little more groundwork before you get on them, because once you get on them, they're more in charge than you are if they're not going to submit. So the spur is actually for working cattle and stuff and making... Some of you fellows know what a skid loader is. Bobcat. A skid loader works a zero turn mower. Same thing. By one wheel staying the same and doing the other. When I was a young fella growing up, we didn't have all that, but we had tractors and you'd have that a, a left and a right wheel brake on that tractor when you want to make a sharp turn. So a stiff neck is, means they would harden their will against God. What a great picture. That's why we're supposed to be soft-willed, strong-willed, but softly submitted to God. It takes a very strong will to stay submitted to God and resist the world. So he said they refuse to obey. Verse 17. He said they hardened their necks. In their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage, but thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness forsookest them not. Read on with me. You probably aren't going to guess where this is going, but this is an amazing truth. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations, yet thou in thy manifold mercies, watch, forsooketh them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way. Neither the pillow of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withhold, withholdest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. Yea, please take note. Forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into corners. So they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multipliedest thou as the stars of heaven, broughtest them into the land concerning which thou had promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands, which their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would, etc. Now we know that they repeated some of their parents' mistakes. In verse 27, therefore thou, uh, verse 26, nevertheless they were disobedient. But I'd like for you to focus on something. And we have to lay a, a few more, the groundwork is, is as important as the lesson. Now watch. God brought them out of Egypt. <laughs> if you got little maps in the back of your Bible or whatever, He brought them out of Egypt and they went across the Red Sea. There's you know different opinions what, where they landed actually, whether they went across the little part onto the peninsula where He took them all the way across. There's great evidence He took them all the way across. He took them across. He got them sort of organized, you would say. 
He gave him some, some stuff. And then in Numbers 13, you read it sometimes, number 13 is number of rebellion in your Bible. That's why when they turn to a teenager, you start having trouble. It's just God just set the whole thing up. Can't miss it. But watch this. In Numbers 13, he sent 12 men in to spy out the place that he was sending them called the Promised Land, also called the land of Canaan because the Canaanites lived there, had conquered it, settled there. But you remember years before that, he had called a man out in Genesis 12, Abraham, whose name originally was Abram. And he said, Abram, every place the sole of your foot walks, I'm going to give you. So he basically sent Abram on a journey to claim that land. Note this, please. God gave the whole rest of the earth to everybody else to do with as they wish, to fight over, to wrestle with, etc. He gave a small piece of land, comparatively, to Israel. Israel is actually Jacob's name. So the people, the descendants of Jacob, he gave it to them and he said, this is where I want you to settle. I don't want you to go out and conquer the world. I want you to settle here. So God has a place for them. Just keep this in mind. He had a specific place for them. Now, I'm not saying that everything in your life today as a child of God, as a Christian in the church age, is dependent upon a geographical place. Although I am certain that there are some ways in which he has a place for you at any given time. But the point of it is, is God had, his, had a, the best place possible for them. He sent the spies in. They saw all the wonderful things, but they also saw the obstacles. They came back and they all agreed that there was great stuff there, but 10 out of the 12 said, we can't do it. They're too big for us. They're too bad for us. To the point that they said we ought to stone these other fellows. In Numbers 13 and 14, we ought to stone them for bringing a good report. Their names were Joshua and Caleb. If you remember your Bible a little bit, that sixth book is called the book of Joshua. Joshua is the Old Testament word name for Jesus. So much so that properly translated, and it is in Hebrews, he makes reference to that about Joshua leading them in because he's a type of Christ and the book of Joshua is a perfect picture of the victorious Christian life. So the promised land, though we sing about it being heaven and stuff, and that's fine. I mean, the song, I won't have to cross Jordan alone, that's wonderful, that's fine. But the promised land for a child of God, the picture for us is God's best for our life, the victorious Christian life. We come across the Red Sea, a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. But then we come to a point where we cross Jordan, a picture of death to self, where we choose to trust him and cross over, and then we fight the good fight of faith. We know that the promised land wasn't a perfect or great type of heaven. I mean, they had to go conquer and fight. There'll be none of that in heaven. But it is the perfect picture for the child of God's victorious life. The greatest victories we get are within. The greatest victories we get that are without are over the world and the flesh and the devil. The world and the devil are without, so to speak. I'm going to throw this in real quick, not in the notes, but 
you have three main enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil. The Bible teaches you defeat the world by what you love. Love not the world, love the things of the Father. Okay? You defeat the devil, resist the devil and he'll flee from you by resistance. You defeat the flesh by submission to the Holy Spirit. So you can't defeat the flesh by resisting it. You have to submit to the Holy Spirit. You can't defeat the world by fighting it. You have to just love God. Love the Lord and not the things of this world. Amen. So the reason that's so important is it's a picture of God's best. My subject is this. God's best or his second best. <clears throat> or you might abbreviate it, God's second best. Now, what do you mean? Okay. God has a best for you. Three points. First one, God has a best for you, for us, for believers. When they did not go in to the promised land, God said, first he did, if you go over read Numbers 14, those 10 fellas, he sent a plague and killed them. I mean, then. But the rest of them that were that generation that voted no, he said, you're not going to go in. And it's going to be 40 years, 40 in your Bibles, a number of probation and testing, rain 40 days and 40 nights, fasted 40 days, 40, you know, life begins at 40. You're through your probation, amen. I mean, the Bible's amazing, ain't it? So watch this. Now watch. So he says, you're going to die off and then your, kid, your children are going in. Two fellas brought a good report, Joshua and Caleb. He said, you're going to live. Not only are you going to live, but you're going to get to lead that generation's children into the promised land. I've joked for years, mostly a joke, that if I'd been Joshua or Caleb, and the Lord said, when these guys die off, you're going in. It probably wouldn't have taken 40 years. There have been a, a number of mysterious deaths. You know, we don't understand why he swallowed his pillow last night. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, what patience, what perseverance, what love for God Joshua and Caleb had. But I want you to get this. For 40 years... They were living in God's second best. And yet, would you read it again with me? Verse 19, Thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not them from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them the light and the way wherein they should go. They had this leadership in God's second best. You know, sometimes you hear preaching that makes you think that if you choose God's second best, you're just going to have trouble and trials. Well, let's watch. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheld us not thy manna from their mouth. He gave them manna and gave them water for thirst. He gave them water. Yea, 40 years. Now watch. Thou didst sustain them in the wilderness so that they, would you mark these two words? They lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old. And their feet swelled not, meaning their shoes didn't even wear out. He gave them victories in verse 22. He multiplied their children and gave them children as the stars of heaven, verse 23. And eventually their children went in. Now, three things. The first, 
I want to introduce, though, is a little poem out of Alan Redpath's little work on Joshua. And it goes like this. God has his best for those who dare to stand the test. God has his second best for those who will not take his best. It is not always open ill that risks the promised rest. The better often is the foe that keeps us from the best. They lacked nothing. Three things. God has the best for us. Not about houses, lands, jobs. Sometimes it's the opposite. But the promised land was God's intention for them. It was his destination for them. As I said, Abraham had walked those boundaries to get it. And how we live on this earth, if we live in God and we experience him, that is God's best for us and that's what he wants. I understand that it might that the hindrance of life might involve, you know, a spouse's choices, might involve work choices. It it might involve trouble due to someone else's refusal. Joshua and Caleb had to wait 40 years, but they did get to go into God's best. So do not despair if you did choose God's second best in the past. You say, well, what do I do? Well, accept some loss. Number one. Number two, approach God humbly. Number three, appropriate God's opportunity. The faith test is going to be greater than the first one he offered. And that would be appropriate. And you and I know it would be appropriate with God for him to do that to us, with us and for us. What was the problem wherewith they, that kept them, wherewith they did not go in? It was faith. Their problem was faith. You see, if we're not careful, we might have, now listen, you might have a life, you might be in church. All right, point number two, God helps even if you choose his second best. I've heard preaching ever since I got saved, you know, 50 some years, 50 years ago or whatever it is now, I've lost track, it's been so long. Yeah, 50 years this year. I, I have heard so much preaching that makes you think if you don't take God's best, you're going to wander in the wilderness and your life is going to be a mess. And listen, I would estimate I'll start to say I'd bet you, but I know you all don't bet. But I would predict, I would estimate that there are a lot of Christians, and I mean a lot of Christians, in church that have God's hand all over them, and yet they lack nothing, and their feet swell not, and He provides them some supernatural stuff. He, he feeds them. He waters them. He takes care of them. He's blessing them. But they're living in his second best. I can picture. I, I have in my mind some people, a man, a woman, uh, different people, that today they are probably living in God's second best, even though, you know, uh, some have ministries. Some have families. They're in church. You see, they, they get manna from God. They get water from God. 
They get victories over their enemies. They get protection and leadership from God. I mean, their shoes lasted, their clothes lasted. They lacked nothing, but they were living God's second best. You know, getting answers to prayer for your needs and protection and peace and guidance, it doesn't mean a person's living in God's best. They went in circles. They missed out while they were getting all those blessings. I mean, if you're 30 or 40, you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. as a Christian, and, and it might even be, you know, like not just in church, but in, I mean, teaching, helping, leading, ministry, pre- whatever. God helps us even if we choose his second best. It is not going to... Some of the people who are appear to be the most content but they're going in circles, but they're in church and they lack nothing. They're living that second best life. You say, well, what is the picture? It, I tell you this, do not yourself, myself, judge the blessings as to whether or not you're living God's best for your life that you have trusted him to enter into his best. There are people who chose God's best for their life and physically they suffered for it. Financially, they suffered for it. Uh, socially, they suffered for it. Some, For example, some have gone to mission fields and it's been hard and tough, but it's God's best for their life. But on that field, they're not getting God's best if they're just content with you know him providing their needs and leading them and all that. They need to say, Lord, what am I supposed to trust you for? It was all about them trusting God to obey him for the next step. So God has a best for your life and my life. God helps even if you choose his second best. Number three, God holds out the hand of promise to those who come after the second best generation. Who's that? The children. The second best who chose second best had to die off so Joshua and Caleb could lead the children in. Those children grew up seeing second best living. So, well, they had manna. They did. They had water. They did. Their clothes. They had they had a light by night, and they had fire by night, they had leading by day, they had provision, they had safety, they had victories, and they went in circles. They grew up seeing the second best. And then when it came time, you know what they said? Ha, we're going in. See, there's a a spirit, you might say. There is a way of life about second best Christian living. It is pretty much free of the world, so to speak. You know, the worst of the world. Not hanging out at the pub. You know, not into some really, you know, wicked sins, like people call them wicked. But they're just going in circles. They're really just like a hamster on a wheel. They might be, hey, you might be faithful in your tithing. 
You might be faithful in your faith promise. You might be faithful in whatever you're doing and be living second best. Now, children see through stuff more than we do as grown-ups. You know, I'm 68, so I don't have the mind that a young person has, my viewpoint, but I know them well enough to know they see through it. I've watched them. They see right through it. This generation did not say to Joshua when it came time, if you go read the book of Joshua, that generation didn't say, oh, we're not going in either. It's going to be too tough. They were tired of second best living. Now wait, lack nothing, all provision, some supernatural, had manna, water from the rock, protection, victories, battles. See, some of us older people, God wants us to show them the way because we would not settle for second best. Whatever the cost, we determined we'll try... Listen, if you've never had to trust God beyond comprehension, beyond reasoning, you've missed out. If you never had to trust Him with your physical life, physical well-being, your financial well-being, your spiritual, your mental well-being, the well-being of, of fa- family and friends, you haven't lived. Because there's nothing quite like it watching Him do it. And look, I've got way more close people on the other side of what I grew up with than are left. But they're on the other side and I know where it's at. And every time I've trusted God, it's become more real, the other world. Now, there is a vicious cycle. You look at verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient. 27, we got to be aware of that. But this thing really struck me that you could be living God's second best and have all your needs met be in church be kind of active i mean but to an observer looking up bird's eye view forest not the trees you're going in a circle in a cycle and you get a little encouragement or you go to and and listen i understand sometimes meetings are set up they almost induce this that you're living God's best for your life as long as you get a real excitement at a meeting or you get a, you know, maybe a revival meeting or whatever. But you see, God's best is a daily experience that they did when they went into the promised land and they daily got what God wanted for them. And it wasn't, it isn't measured for us by houses and lands and jobs because they measured it by the fact that verse 21, they lacked nothing but you see a person can be very content with lacking nothing and yet having nothing they didn't have god's best i'll close with this what i read in the beginning god has his best for those who dare to stand the test god has his second best for those who will not take his best It is not always open ill that risks the promised rest. The better often is the foe that keeps us from the best. Say, what does he mean, brother? Well, being in church, being active in church, tithing, giving, supporting missions, coming to meetings, 
doing all those things, well, that's the better. It's a whole lot better than being out of church and being backslidden and being in the world. That's so much better. But oh, how many children of God have his better, but they wouldn't take his best. They wouldn't say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with what I cannot see. I'm going to trust you and obey you with what I don't see victory in, in myself. All they could see was the giants. All they could see was the opposition. There was so much waiting for them. They all agreed there was so much waiting for them, but 10 out of 12 of them, 10 out of 12, led the people to rebel against God Almighty and to even threaten the let's get God's best fellows, Joshua and Caleb. God's best or God's second best. Father, I pray you'd use these thoughts now. And I pray that you pull somebody's heart in. They would look at it and examine it. Lord, it's not a critical thing at all. But it's not being satisfied with just the provided life and the led life and the church life. But to have your best. I pray thou, Holy Spirit, would make application. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen and amen.